Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, where three brothers from three different generations talk about their one shared passion, music. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. And today, in honor of the Super Bowl, we're talking Los Angeles versus New England. You can now listen to episodes on the Brother Pod app, which also gives you access to additional new music, music news, clips, and content that we curate for each episode. You can also interact with us directly through the talkback feature. Ask us questions, make suggestions, and voice your own opinions. Just search Brother Pod in the App Store to download onto your mobile device. As always, you can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us positively on iTunes. Now... Let's talk about music from New England versus music from Los Angeles in honor of the Super Bowl. Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. And today, in honor of the Super Bowl, we are talking about the musical legacies of New England versus the musical legacies of Los Angeles, uh, two places where I've spent a considerable amount of my life. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a difficult one to pit against each other, but we're going we're gonna to try anyway. I think we'll try and make this as ugly as possible. But uh, going back... To uh, the fact that the music industry itself is is calls Los Angeles home and message. I mean, uh, New home England of champions is yeah. uh, New England. <laughs> New England is, is really just uh, sort of um, uh, you know just happens to have produced a lot of of some of our favorite music and a lot of uh, you know a great legacy in general. Much like its football team. Yeah. Um, Christian, have you uh, have you any thoughts about these uh, these two locations as uh, generators of music? Yeah, um, I you know I think uh, first as generators of football. Please God, do not let the New England Patriots win another Super Bowl. I fucking had it. It's been my entire adult life that they've been dominating uh, dominating this thing, and it's it's really time for literally anybody else. Um, I couldn't care less. It could be the Dallas Cowboys, and I would probably be rooting for them. Um, this is like uh, I think I think done. A, a, you know, just like I'm, it's wonderful for you guys. I, I couldn't be happier for you. Yes, um, you could. Ex- except that I, also, <laughs> except that I obviously am not very happy for you. So yeah, and, um, and, and there are two things. One, you could be happier for us, and two, God is obviously not listening to your prayers. <laughs> Um, well, uh, that, that's probably also uh, well-deserved. Um, as far as, you know, those two cities are concerned, you know, we've talked a, a fair amount in the past, I think, about how L.A. is sort of a, a funny one because it is such a... Uh, it is such a Hollywood town, and it is so dominated by, by people who are aspiring to superstardom in a variety of different fields. Um, I think that that has... A pretty significant influence, actually, on the way that um, musicians ultimately sort of uh, shape their identities and their um, allegiances. Well, and their performances. I mean, there, there is a show business equality to uh, LA performances in a way that there isn't necessarily um, to a lot of uh, uh, Boston perform- performers historically. And you know, by contrast, what's Boston known for? It's known for college. Um, so there are a lot of uh, nerdy, nerdy, ugly bands. <laughs> There's a, we've produced a fair, our fair share of those. The one thing I will, the one thing that I find interesting about the sort of LA uh, scene historically is it used to be. I mean, back in the '70s, it was in the '60s, even the '70s into the '70s. You know, it was it was seen as like this scene where everybody was kind of helping each other out. I mean, it. Uh, given that these were the baby boomers, they ultimately became really selfish, uh, hooked on cocaine, and hated each other, uh, and sued each other uh, after that. But back in the 70s, it seemed like kind of an I- idealistic place where, you know, if somebody was making a record, you know, there's all this sort of uh, um, crossover. You know, you listen to a Graham Parsons album, for, in- for instance, and, you know, you get Stevie Nicks and Linda Ronstant. And um, the Eagles you know, backing Nicolette Larson, uh, 
you know, uh, singing background, Linda Ronstadt's backup band became the Eagles um, with her blessing. You know, they quit mid-tour, and she was like, oh, yeah, you guys go do your thing. Um, well, it's, go ahead. There's a lifestyle difference as well, and I think, uh, you know, having not, not being from New England but living here a uh, decent part of my life and, and spending some time certainly in Southern California and, and when you having lived out there, you know, I think you, you have a, you know, puritanical sort of, uh, you know, chip on your shoulder, New England uh, ethos. And in L.A., it's sunny all the time and it's warm. And why wouldn't you help, you know, people and be friendly when you have a lemon tree in your backyard? And I also think, too, that, uh, you know, L.A.'s music scene kind of boomed with the, you know, in, well, L.A. always obviously had a music scene when, when record companies started moving from New York to L.A., but... But there was also just a huge boom with the commercialization of things, you know, becoming big. So you had the 70s, you know, the 60s bands turning into the 70s mega millionaires flying their own planes. And then you also had the MTV generation of hair metal bands and things like that, where Boston was was a place where truly was college rock and then some obscurities that got famous and those people ended up having to move to L.A. eventually anyways and then sucking, so, like most things in L.A. So it, I, the, the interesting part for me is that, you know, like I said, there was a spirit of collaboration back in the 70s. 80s, there was hair metal. Um, you know, it was a full-on scene. Everything, everybody had to move to L.A. to get famous, and that, you know, people formed bands. But as the 90s came around and into the 2000s, it seems like there's literally... Uh, I'm not going to say none, um, and I'm not going to use literally in that case. But there are there you you find very few bands out of Los Angeles. You find a lot of solo artists that start in Los Angeles, but there that it's a, it's an interesting, um, and I don't know whether it's a function of LA becoming far more expensive. It used to be kind of cheap, and and you could find uh, housing and and live you know, on someone's couch for a long period of time. There's a lot of space out there. But, you know, how did it go from the spirit of collaboration to this sort of um, exclusively almost singer-songwriter, um, you know, uh, acts coming out of Los Angeles? Re- I mean, name a band that's come out of L.A. in the past 20 years, or name, you know, five bands that have come out of L.A. in the last 20 years. It's hard to do. I, I actually don't think it's as, as hard maybe as... Um you think it's it's more just uh, it, it's a question of how closely you associate with the identity of the city you're from, um, and you know in that case like there aren't a lot of people who are flying the LA flag, um, and and I don't know that there ever really have been. I mean, so if you think about like the like since the 1960s and the Sunset Strip and the Birds and um, you know the the sort of that first generation of uh, Buffalo Springfield and and you know. The Doors, Love, Beach Boys, right? Like those guys were sort of iconic um, and and very much, I think, rooted in in a sort of in the geography, the Southern California mm-hmm. like um, sunshine and and you know, uh, '60s counterculture was another big part of it. Um, by the '70s, you know, you had these sort of um, diverging punk scenes grow up or crop up in in. Uh, LA, DC, New York, and then a little bit after that, I, I guess Boston. Um, by virtue of the fact that everybody from high school and those other places went to college in Boston, um, and you know, I, I guess I, I think of there's sort of the the um, overlay that that is like a, a sort of more constant since the 1970s in LA that that sort of uh, that continues to this day are the session musicians and the the Totos. Um, you know, of like uh, maybe 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 the most like quintessentially LA band of all time, in the sense that it's a dozen guys who nobody's ever heard of, who With are perms. supremely good yeah. musicians, who have perms, um, yeah, who basically uh, put together one of the biggest blockbuster hits of all time, um, but sort of covered recently a, by Weezer, another LA transplant band. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Although, although actually, that is the uh, that is the bi-coastal Boston to LA connection right yep. there. Um, so, uh, in the sense that that guy would never fucking let you forget that he went to Harvard. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I think it, it is sort of interesting to ask yourself, like, what's the what's the industry um, part of the town look like? And in in Boston, I guess you know the industry amounts to Newbury Comics and the Middle East Club. Um, and the rest is just, like, a lot of enterprising young people. In L.A., like, 
enterprising young people are still aspiring to be part of the industry in you know in caps and, and in quotes. Um, it, it is the the you know the the sort of home, the the uh, corporate home of, of music aside from New York. So. Yeah, and no, I would I throw one caveat where you have Berkeley School of Music. I mean, it goes along the college theme of Boston, but a ton of people come out of Berkeley as yeah, well. Yeah, it's really the only rock and roll college yeah, yeah. there is, except for North Texas. You know, I mean, some of the music programs are more rock oriented, but most of them are jazz programs and theory programs, and and Berkeley is all of those things. But also, you know, but I mean, also, yeah, aspiring pop musicians for sure. Yeah, um, although we will we will gladly. Um, uh, forego credit for Imagine Dragons, uh, <laughs> three of four of which went to Berkeley. Um, but yeah, there was, you know, it used to be, and then, you know, in, in asking that question about, um, you know, sort of how did the collaborative effort go into the sort of solo silos, um, you know, it, it you know, occurs to me, obviously, the last 20 years uh, has been very tech-driven, um, that college bands don't really exist in the same way that they used to. People don't put, you know, Adverts in the newspaper in the in the alternative weekly newspaper anymore to find a drummer who's somewhere between John Bonham and Karen Carpenter, um, like they used to, and you know there you know therein lies your you know your you don't really have campus bands anymore I would imagine I mean you're you're closer to college than any of us Christian <laughs> um, you know it seems like people if they are musically inclined will you know put together full. Um, Recordings on their own rather than really like you know jam in a in a hall for several hours is that a pretty fair assessment? Yeah, I mean I think that's that's accurate, but but it's probably more a reflection of of the way the technologies um, sort of you know democratized uh, distribution like music production. Yeah. Um, I, you know I don't I think that you had such an opportunity like in a relatively. Well, something that was relatively rare in the 1970s and 80s, or when you know most of the 90s, um, was a captive audience uh, that would listen to you tune your fucking instruments on a stage for for two hours. And um, you know, I, I think that that that's what college, you know, it, it, much like it provides a, a, a an opportunity to sort of. Um, uh, try new things and other aspects of your life, like um, you know, m- music is one of them, and it's a it's a great chance for for bands to really cut their chops. Um, I think now you can just start doing that so early and at any time, and upload it on the internet and hope to God that somebody finds it and likes it. Um, you know, and if if the idea is, I guess that if you're good enough, that sort of uh, the 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 world will find you. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm not sure that that's ultimately actually true, but um, that, that that is the belief. So, um, well, there's yeah, such I mean, a lack of need to move to a major metropolitan yeah. area these days, and LA being the record industry, I think dying too is not helping that city. But even 20 years ago, LA was very affordable, and and it really is yeah. priced out of all and I, you know sense now. I wonder also if um, you know to to sort of continue on your line of of questioning and, and reasoning about whether um, you know college bands exist in the same way that they used to I have to wonder also if there's less incentive ultimately to form bands at all um, and in the sort of in a slightly more like uh, individualistic culture like facilitated by, by tech for kids basically like um, you know the idea of getting together in somebody's basement for six hours and like learning to play songs um, seems almost like an anachronism and, and you know adding to that is the fact that like a lot of the reasons that you would form a band um, in the first place probably you know it was sort of partly out of necessity it was like it was okay well you know you can't do all the driving yourself and uh, the load-ins and the load-outs and play the show and well, you can't make write the, the same songs. amount of music with the, with one person you know I mean it's you know, it's, it's, it requires multiple instruments, which are now contained in one uh, device, you know. Sure, although that was true as soon as, like, you know, Korgs arrived. But, I mean, the, the question is sort of, like, did the, um, did the, the burden-sharing benefits of, like, joining a band uh, sort of dissipate with, you know, when there are a lot of corners that you can effectively cut, in, in, you know, in, in that respect? Uh, like, you don't have to slap together, like... 
800 mailer demos of your CD anymore, um, which, by the way, it really helps to have friends for. Uh, you know, you, you can you can sort of get the word out in, in other ways. I don't know. It's just an interesting... It's like I'm thinking about the sort of the economy of, of like... What other re- you know other reasons that you ultimately band together with your friends for for that purpose? Yeah, I mean, Besides. touring isn't really you know it sort of used to be a congregation. I mean, it, you you play campus shows or you play off campus shows in bars, and and people would come see you. It's it's sort of uh, you know I don't even know like I don't know what you what the do, do you find there's a, a falling off of of live music. At this point, I mean, I know you go to a ton of live music, but um, do you think there's a, a the audience is falling off um, or not? Not really? noticeably. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think there's just there's a steady there's a steady appetite um, for this, irrespective of uh, you know it, it might not be um, the peak of uh, arena rock attendance, but at the same time, like. Everything that we're learning, you know, all the industry data seems to suggest that, in point of fact, um, you know, live shows are, are where the money's being made these days. So um, I, I would say, to the contrary, uh, I think the experience is actually at a premium, um, partly because of the way you can sort of you can you can repackage that and um, uh, uh, channel it through your own like social media accounts and say you were there. Mm. Yeah, actually, that I mean, that is obviously one of the great. Uh, Advances and yet one of the great annoyances in the world is is anybody who's standing in front of you, video, you know, uh, taping it on their phone, um, the live experience. But um, so before we take a break and talk about some of the bands, uh, let's name check some genres of each city quickly. I mean, you've got the uh, L.A. I think certainly um, is going to score big on the rap front versus Boston. I think so. <laughs> In general, um, what? Mr. Liff. <laughs> Mr. Liff. <laughs> Mr. Liff, yeah. You've got um, the uh, gangster singer songwriter uh, contingent out in Laurel Canyon for sure. Um, and in Boston, I think college rock, um, you definitely have New Wave represented quite well. Yeah, we had, a, I mean, there was a lot of folkies that started out of Boston. It's true, yeah, the um, Cambridge scene. And you know, I think um, it was still sort of lay claim a little bit to the sort of Carly Simon, James Taylor. Of it all, and and um, true. Not, 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 were that They're prideful, um, <laughs> but you know there was some there were some arena rock bands out of Boston. Obviously, there was a ton out of L.A. Um, so yeah, it was sort of you know the hardcore scenes were obviously uh, sort of leans towards Los Angeles in terms of its uh, seminal nature and and um, you know importance, and then you sort of have. Uh, you know, college rock out of Boston, the yep. sort of uh, indie yeah, rock. Yeah, some of the, of the the few probably anchors of uh, any sort of indie rock band that credits uh, an earlier band today actually came usually from that, that time England. period in New and England. If, if yeah. we extrapolate it out to New England, too, other than just Boston, I mean, you've got Amherst, Amherst Northampton, which produced a bunch of bands, um, Rhode Island, which, you know, uh, gave us a, a handful, New Hampshire, a uh, handful, Maine, almost none. Yeah, um, thank you, Maine. Um, you know, but there were, and, and then, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, given that L.A. gets to take credit for hair metal, I think a fair <laughs> number of the jam band. Yeah, I would uh, say the contingent of boarding schools and uh, boarding school hippies that go to University of Vermont gave us fish. Thank you. Yeah, fuckers. <laughs> anyway, you want to take a quick break and come back? Let's do it. Let's listen to uh, The Freezes. This is Boston, not L.A. Yeah. 
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today, in honor of the Los Angeles New England Super Bowl, we are comparing the histories of, of music coming out of Los Angeles versus New England. And, um, you know, as you drew up a list of, of acts, I mean, you know, a, a bulk of our my favorites, you know, come from one or the other. And, um, you know, I, we're trying to sort of think of, of what, because the sound isn't um, necessarily similar throughout the vein of, of, uh, of who comes from both places, but there are certain acts that are just undeniably identified with um, their region. And, um, you know, Los, let's, let's start with Los Angeles. And a couple that I, you know, uh, you know, sort of intrinsic, you know, I find intrinsic to the city are um, Guns N' Roses. Um, yep. Metallica. Uh, San Fran. San Francisco. Bay Area. They're, uh, they're from L.A., but that's all right. They're not from, they're uh, no, from San they're Francisco. No, they're Bay Area. Um, uh, the, the Eagles are always uh, sort of, you know, lumped in with that California sound. Uh, Fleetwood Mac, even though three-fifths of the band was English. Yeah, I would say the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac have a very... I mean, that to me, when you talk about a band sounding like an area, is very Southern California sounding. And I mean, it's obviously has a a very unique 70s sound. And uh, I think both kind of carry that, like, uh, you know, that... That moment in time, especially you know Fleetwood Mac, sort of later seventies, and, and uh, Eagles with the the tinge of country, um, and then the you know the pop songs, but they are definitely uh, two that uh, you cannot are unmistakably Southern California. And I think you know NWA, Kendrick Lamar. Is NWA um, from California? <laughs> I believe so. San Francisco, apparently. Yeah. No, I mean, do you really want to get into the Metallica thing? They they did form in Los Angeles. That they have, they yeah. Lars Ulrich started them there. They well, he's from fucking Norway. Um, but uh, and so I would say if you're going to claim Gangstar, by the way, we're uh, progenitors of New York hardcore. Um, then I would say that uh, that that you can count Metallica in, in LA's camp, and I think it strengthens their case because one thing they needed was real heavy metal. They have great punk showing though. Yeah, they do. Black Flag, Circle Jerks, um, you know, the, that germs. was... Germs. they were all, I mean, Decline of Western Civilization. My favorite band, X, um, you know, is, is intrinsically L.A. But, you know, like most L.A. bands, you know, the majority of the people aren't from L.A. You know what I mean? It's, you know, um, X was formed by two East Coasters living in Los Angeles. Well, California is also that place where people head west. It's a very American thing to go west. And it's also a place where desperation occurs because it's the last stop on the yeah. continent. <laughs> so, I mean, there and, you know, you're, there's a mix of, uh, you know, dystopia, especially the time of the punk, and paradise, right? So I thought I think that has a lot to do with the hardcore scene there um, and, you know, definitely, obviously flourished in, in an aggressive hardcore scene. I mean, Minus X and the Germs are some of the early bands, but L.A. is also responsible for that really aggressive sort of hyper-male hardcore that kind of took over, yeah. yep. Well, I think, you know, I mean, I, we've said this before, I think there was a period from, like, you know, 78 to 81, 82, where there was a punk scene in Los Angeles, the city of, and then it sort of migrated out to the suburbs, to Orange County, and that's what people think of as, um, you know... That's certainly around the moniker SoCal punk, yeah. SoCal hardcore, you know, with, uh, you know, people like Black Flag, again, uh, lead singer notwithstanding being from Washington. But, um, you know, the, you know, all those bands that, that, you know, were coming out of TSOL and, and bands like that that were coming out of uh, Orange County and, and really took the, the sort of violent element of it um, above the, uh, above all else, you know, the sort of uniformity and, and aggression and, again, like you said, male dominance of the, of the sport um, to new levels. There was a, um, and then I think of someone like Beck as being a quintessential L.A. performer, um, born and raised and kind of of the place. And, and for that reason, um, and I think his output really reflects that. It, it's, you know it's a Beck song, but you never know what the influences that went into the sausage machine are going to be. 
it's interesting you say that because you know in his particular case you were the one who told me years ago that that um that he was from southern california and i i guess it was just sort of i'd never really thought about it before there's still something that feels like a, a, a sort of southern midwestern quality to him um, that like he, I mean he could just as easily be from Texas or Oklahoma and I, I don't know whether it's just the, the general weirdness that I consider aligned very with nicely Austin. with the flaming lips and with um, butthole surfers and butthole surfers exactly that like just there's just sort of like an oddball quality that I think allows him to fit very nicely in with like the Marfa crowd mm-hmm. um, you know but but yeah at, at the end of the day he's done an incredible um, job uh, s- sort of Evolving as this like uh, sort of incredible like shape shifting artist who Troubadour. you know yeah it, it, and it really is I mean you go back and you look at at sort of the the his his sort of version of or, you know his stage presence like in 1993 or whatever it was for um, the first year that he was on the the festival circuit with with Loser with the uh, leaf blower and the yeah um, like you know he's just. He's just changed so much since then, um, but really sort of uh, become like a, an iconic, um, you know. Uh, well, didn't he win the Lifetime Achievement Grammy two years ago? I don't. Or no, know. he just won. He just won the Grammy for for the album, which was which was like probably yeah. his eighth yeah, best his, album. His ninth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think that was the Lifetime Achievement <laughs> Grammy. You know, that is the uh, Al Pacino Memorial Scent of a Woman Best Actor, uh, yes. Paul Newman for Color of Money, <laughs> or everybody who's received Best New Artist for their third album in the last yeah, exactly. twenty five yeah. years. Lynn. But Beck does fall into that theory of the solo artist out there as well, because you know Beck. You know, dating back to like One Foot in the Grave, his earliest stuff was definitely like a weird kind of indie lo-fi artist who's who's gotten huge and taken things to the next level. But again, it's Beck. You know, it's not a band. It's not anything else. It never has been. He also had the chairman of Warner Brothers' son as his drummer forever. Yeah, (laughs) you know what I mean. It's that kind of Hollywood. But Um, yeah, he's a he almost you know you know there's you know when you think about somebody like Michael Angelicos being from. Uh, well, actually, you know, going to college in Boston, but launching a career from Boston with Passion Pit. Um, you know, it's that same sort of bedroom recording artist that, you know, then went and scrambled together a, a, a live touring band that to back them up because their vision was so strong originally and their, um, their drive was so, you know, their artistic drive was so strong. It's, it's pretty, it's an interesting case. He's an interesting case study. I think he will go down as sort of an iconoclast because there really is no two backs. And then for hip hop, I mean, obviously NWA kicking off the West Coast gangster Ice-T. rap. Yeah, Ice T actually prior to that even, and, and then the career of Dre. Um, so there always was that you know West Coast G Funk difference. You know where New York kind of ruled the hip hop world. Those guys really putting LA on the map. And then today, I think you have some of the hottest hip hop stars going out of LA. I mean Kendrick, and we talk about in Staples all the time on this pod. Um, and there was even a, a pretty interesting period in the sort of early 2000s of more kind of, of that backpacker, De La style hip hop with like Jurassic 5 and Black Alicious and groups like that, Souls of Mischief, that were Which also really out of LA. Simultaneous to a sort of, I would say, a darker era of. Um, uh, of, of rock music that was coming out of LA, which is sort of, I mean, a lot of the new metal bands um, were, were sort of, uh, I think, packaged, um, at, at least in, in Los Angeles. And I'm, I mean, I, I, and sort of, or following the, the Lincoln Park mold, mm-hmm. those guys were from uh, Agora Hills, I think. Yeah. Um, I think it's in LA gym. County. I, yeah. I, oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's out in the valley. It's a, it's a very nice neighborhood. Um, but, you know, you had Rage Against the Machine come out in, in the early 90s. which Another Boston-L.A. hybrid. If you yeah, can't tell yeah. Morello is a I, Harvard He's guy. a Chicago guy who went to Harvard, yeah. Um, but he, I think, um, you know, again, I've always said this about Rage Against the Machine. I think they're great, and I think they spawned a million bad imitators. And, um, you know, you can throw in, I mean, I, you know, Davis isn't, in LA, but uh, you know, throwing corn and bands like that, and then that that era, which again, Christian, I'll defer to you. You know who and where all these bands came from, but a lot of them came out of uh, Orange County, didn't they? With the in that the, sort of the punk new era, metal, or? pop punk, yeah. new metal, um, yeah, Papa Roach, uh, 
stained POD. Yeah, stained um, was a Springfield, Massachusetts band. So ooh, that's right. That's, that's right. right. <laughs> I confused them with Mud Man. Stained city. God, Godsmack was a lol mass band. That doesn't surprise uh, me at all. Oh, God, I know. Yeah, LA has spawned two rough uh, white male. Uh, you know, supposedly hard rock scenes because I, you know, having grown up through the hair metal <laughs> think, scene of Rat and uh, you know, um, Poison, yeah, that was bad. So I think enough, I'd like to motion to enough Z enough. Yeah, I'd like to motion to instead of um, instead of calling it new metal from now on, just always calling it supposedly hard rock. Yeah. <laughs> I I think um, you know it, it's funny. Like if there was somebody who was arguing. In favor of Los Angeles, you could just sit here and name off hair metal bands uh, until they stopped talking. <laughs> you know, there was such a uh, you know glut of those things in the in the eighties. You can't even remember how many you know bands that like you know just the same uniform, the same fucking formula, the you know bad hard rock song that's a tight leather pants, you know ballad hit. Yeah, one tick above sweet in terms of edge. And then, you know, the next one's a ballad that's like a Richard Marks song. It was a fucking... It was a dark period. It was very dark. And during that period, should we take a uh, five-hour flight <laughs> across the country and to our, uh, you know, refuge of college yeah, rock? Yeah, Boston was you really know? fruitful back then, and, and it, you know, in a way that it hasn't been since. But, you know, in the early 80s, you had the Cars and Mission of Burma who were driving two different, you know, a very mainstream... Um, you know, sort of innovative sound versus a very uh, underground uh, influential sound. And then, you know, that gave rise to, you know, bands like Pixies and Dinosaur in the mid-'80s. Throwing Muses. Throwing Muses. Um, you know, you had... Uh, in the, well, ah, damn. Um, you know, in the-'70s, you had Aerosmith, Boston, um, Jay Giles Band, uh, all sorts of, you know, sort of main... Uh, mainstream arena rock bands but then you know that that college underground era uh, stretches from about 86 to about 94 was really pretty Boston centric I mean you're talking Buffalo Tom the Lemonheads uh, Julian Hatfield um, you know all sorts of belly yeah belly um, there was just it was a lot of uh, you know there was a lot of action going on out here and it was still the time pre-internet when um you know these scenes these regional scenes um were you know were followed by the industry and so you know it's not an accident that you know when a when a you know who's doing the replacements hit in minneapolis everybody in minneapolis got signed or when rem and the b-52s hit in athens everybody from athens got signed when the pixies and dinosaur hit everybody from this area got signed, you know, that's the gold rush for people like Buffalo Tom and the Lemonheads and everybody. And then, you know, uh, the next group was Seattle. And when that hit, everybody got signed. And then, then we got the internet. Yep. And it all went down and, and there was no more regionalism, <laughs> but it was a, it was a curious time. And there was definitely, you know, Boston definitely had its, had its, uh, moment in the sun. Yeah. And like I said before, kind of a hyper concentration of bands that I think are very influential to this day to, uh, you know, at least in a style of music that we, we all enjoy quite a bit. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. And, and it, you know, it's impossible to, to overlook the sort of the, the, the natural or, or like, you know, battlefield advantage that, that a place like Boston has just because of the high concentration of young people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But that's when, like, like we said before, and this is a circuitous way around of saying this, um, that was back when people met up and, and started bands and, and, and toured out of bands and things of that nature. So it does seem like, uh, it does seem really recent, and yet it seems like a million years ago at the same time. I will say, too, just in the spirit of uh, the actual Super Bowl there's always been an unnatural and uh, probably unnecessary hatred of LA and Boston. <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah. Well, it goes back to the Celtics, Celtics Lakers, Lakers for sure. The 80s. But I don't think anybody in LA cares as much as, as people in Boston, or maybe they do. Maybe they hate Boston no, as much as they, they literally keep saying, "Come on out, you'll yeah, love it." Yeah, well, that's a, <laughs> yeah. I, I, exactly. I think I've told you guys this before, but I don't know that I've ever said it on the podcast. I was listening to sports radio in Los Angeles a couple years ago. And, you know, some guy got on and he was talking about people from Philadelphia and people from Boston. And he's like, yeah, man, they take it so serious. And, like, 
you know, just chill. <laughs> and, um, you know, I guess it's because it's really cold there and, and they don't really have things to do. Like, we can go hiking and surfing and, uh, you know, go to the beach. But I guess if you're locked in your house, I guess you, uh, you know, that's what you do. You just, you get mad and you watch sports. <laughs> and I was like, I think that's pretty you motherfucker, <laughs> wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> As you swing your car off As the you road, imagine yeah. smashing uh, the exactly. radio mic into his I was forehead. Like, See, this is the kind of put. Oh, wait a second, that guy's going to pull. Oh, and did, we did forget Gigi Allen, of course. That's true. Uh, yeah. The pride of the pride of doing <laughs> sure for what. Um, you know, so we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Gigi as a, as a real um, son of uh, son of the region. Yeah, he showed his Puritan uh, roots, and <laughs> but yeah, there was there was a good hardcore scene here, and, and funny enough, I believe that almost every band that is I uh, that was playing on the This Is Boston Not L.A. Uh, compilation back in nineteen eighty fill in the blank um, is uh, still pretty much performing today. Uh, I'm looking at you, Slapshot, and yeah. uh, Gangrene, and everybody else. So. I will say that. Um, that is an iconic album title for a compilation. There was the New York Hardcore album, the Feeling in Hardcore. I mean, L.A.'s bands were stood on their own. But This Is Boston, Not L.A. It was always sort of a, a, a prideful uh, you know, record store selection for anybody who didn't live in L.A. Yeah, and it was one of those things that every suburban kid in Boston had. Yeah, it was um, standard issue. It was. And they might have been on the... They might have actually been on the album, Standard Issue. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway... Um, so uh, that said, I, you know, I, it's a, it's to me, it's kind of a toss-up as far as who wins the uh, who wins the title. I guess you'd have to sort of lean into L.A., but uh, I guess then I would have to lean back when I'm actually pitching or picking the uh, outcome of this actual Super Bowl this weekend and um, say Los Angeles. You've you've provided us with. Um, Greatness in the music scene, and um, we will teach you greatness on the football field this weekend. Yeah, I think LA wins by a field goal in the music scene, and and <laughs> uh, you know late in the fourth, and I think um, Boston wins by two touchdowns or New England, I should say, Patriots. Christian, do you have a uh, any? Thankfully, nobody in LA will be watching the Super Bowl because it's nice outside and there's other stuff to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I'm actually curious to see whether they. Well, I mean, I, I guess, uh, you know, it, whether they have any, like, fan-centric events, you know, in, um, uh, in, in L.A. itself. Oh, I, we I have a team, only, dude? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Um, the Trojans? Uh, but, I mean, I, I've got to think that, like, the majority of people who are going to have packed up and shown up for the Super Bowl in Atlanta are actually going to be from St. Louis, um, who, uh, who may well have come around by now. I, I'm really... I'm just, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm curious where the, where the fan base is, is, um, is really rooted these days. Uh, you know, I think the, I find that relocations tend to tend to uh, spark more hatred and resentment than they do affinity. But I don't know a lot of people in St. Louis anymore. Yeah, I mean, then again, um, they were also the recipients of a of a relocation originally. So, um, you know, this is sort of a, a restoration of, of order or like a return to the equilibrium. Um, and you know, maybe they were maybe they were just happy to get the couple Super Bowls that they did out of uh, out of the St. Louis Rams. Um, in any event, I'm actually going to go the other way on both of these. I think uh, I think Boston um, has the uh, the better music scene. Certainly, the one that's been more influential in my life, and um, you know, one for for which I am. Uh, I would say more routinely grateful um, than I ever am of Coldplay and Lincoln Park. Um, so uh, I, I will go with Boston. And um, for the Super Bowl, I'm going to go with L.A. because you know what? It's time for a fucking change. <laughs> when it's time. Philadelphia tried to give that to you last year, Christian. And uh, you're still angry yep. about it. All right. Well, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and we will end this how we end every podcast with a What Are You Listening To? and adding a song to the 26,422 10 best songs of all time. Sounds good. Yeah, nigga, I'm still fucking with you. Still waters run deep. Still Snoop Dogg and D.I.E. Nah, nah, nigga. Guess who's back? Still. Still doing that shit, Andre? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Check me out. It's still Dre Day, nigga. AK, nigga, though I've grown a 
lie, can't keep it home a lot. Cause when I frequent the spots that I'm known to rock, you hear the bass from the truck when I'm on the block. Ladies, they pay homage, but haters say Dre fell off. Pow, nigga, my last album was the chronic. They wanna know if he still got it. They say raps change. They wanna know how I feel about it. You ain't up on Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. We are going to end this episode like we end every episode with a question that is burning at its core. And the answer and the answer is in your hands. Christian, what are you listening to? Jeremy, why don't you go first? All right. Well, I, uh, I'm going to throw a book out there and um, started this book, put it down, and then just finished it recently, which is American Kingpin, the story of Silk Road. I think I... Christian yourself recommended that when we saw each other over Christmas break and uh, the story of Ross Ulbricht, um, you know, building a billion dollar drug empire and then going to, uh, you know, his fate at age 31. It's a pretty amazing story in general. I think um, just the cast of characters, especially the law enforcement characters, I found like really interesting and in and, and all of these like bizarre cases in sort of the new new world of Internet. Um you just had a lot of information on people and a lot of information on this guy's thinking and his, uh, you know, thought process towards building this empire, which was extremely successful. And, you know, like a lot of things, some of the things you could actually agree with and then others just were completely ludicrous and yeah, it just became, you know, egocentric. But I think it's a really good book for a, a lot of reasons. One, it's a super interesting story. I, and didn't know about Silk Road that much until after the fact, thank God. And then um, also because, you know, just always, there's always that weird way that these people get caught. And I think that part is extremely fascinating, especially in the day of like encrypted code and, and internet um, tour and all the shit that I do not understand. But um, also just the free market ideals and, and things like that were, that were behind it. So anyways... I thought it was a really fun book, a good book, easy read, and uh, a really interesting story, and also kind of gives you a little bit of insight into probably some of the thinking of some of our major tech companies today, and uh, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I'll, I'll second that. Uh, yeah, just to follow on and say, you know, I, I think it is, um, it's a great story, and, and uh, you know, again, yeah, this sort of tension between, like, the utopian idealism of, of like, um, some of the... the I, I, you know, web sort of activists and um, uh, who take, I think, a sort of libertarian, a set of libertarian principles and, and ideals to a sort of, um, uh, to a fairly problematic extreme um, and, you know, end up ultimately uh, taking pretty big risks and, and are willing to um, basically just break the law to prove a point. Um, and, you know, you're, you're sort of caught between the idea that well on, on the one hand you know I can sympathize with some of the some of the points this guy's making um, on the other hand this does seem kind of gratuitous and harmful um, and uh, I, I think the the you know the comparison ultimately is like yeah the Unabomber manifesto had a couple of good ideas in it right um, <laughs> you know but like you, at some point you have to draw a line and I think it you know somewhere before mail bombs um, so in any event, uh, having just put the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast on an FBI watch list, um, I will go on to say that uh, there are two things I would highlight. One is I'm sort of very, I'm very immersed in, like, in, in, in politics right now. And um, uh, uh, so, Wyndham, you mentioned this, I know, last week, um, which was the Brexit movie, which I watched and, and actually really enjoyed. Um, I think for anybody who's intimidated by the subject matter, um, I can't stress enough the fact that, like, it's almost secondary to a very good character portrayal, um, you know, uh, of, of Dom Cummings, who is um, uh, sort of the, the en- engineer and, and um, activist uh, responsible or, or director of the Leave campaign. Um, and, and you, again, sort of see um, the tension between a sort of uh, a idealism versus pragmatism and, and um, it, uh, with a very practical political uh, consequence um, and if, if, if to name something that I actually um, that, that hasn't been mentioned before I would say I've just finished uh, the coddling of the American mind which made a lot of um, end of year uh, lists in 2018 and, and was sort of seen as this um, uh, sort of pretty significant um, book that sort of tells the story of why um, why the 
current sort of generation of college students and, and those who've just graduated in the last several years um, are sort of, uh, uh, I, I guess, pushing back on perceived like free speech norms over the course of, you know, that have been so well established for, for decades. Um, the, the, you know, the thesis of the book is, is sort of that um, these, these kids are, uh, you know, have been protected or coddled, I suppose, by, um, by well-intentioned parents, but that the result is, um, is, is that they are a little bit more closed-minded about, um, uh, about, you know, verbal offense that might be taken in the context of a college classroom. Um, I have to say a lot of this, like, it's, it's sort of painted as a crisis and, and it's not entirely clear that I, I, you know, that that's the case. Um, and it does feel a little bit like a bunch of old guys, uh, yelling at the kids to get the fuck off mm-hmm. their lawn. So, um, you know, take that with a like for what it's worth, but is it a um, national emergency? <laughs> according, I mean, well, so th- this is also. It's certainly been the book has been written about in that way. I actually think that the argument itself that's laid out in the text is like much more understated and uh, academic. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but certainly, you know, the title, "The Coddling of the American Mind," is catchy, designed to sell books. Yeah. Um, so Wyndham's crawling into a safe space right now, mm-hmm. so we'll have to I'm get sure. him back to... No, I do think... I mean, I, I'm very conscious of the fact that there's a lot of people wagging their fingers saying kids today, and, and it's... Um, it's also being used as an excuse to be needlessly offensive. <laughs> well, the funny thing is that the one common thread throughout is that uh, there will always be a 50-plus contingent waving their fingers and saying yeah. kids today. You know, I mean, yeah. that's just a fact of life. It's That's Damn the one thing that has gone days, on change, you know? Yeah. And, it, you know, that fill-in-the-blank is going to rot your brain, whether that be uh, radio, television, rock and roll, um, you know, MTV, uh, the computer, yeah. uh, social media. Video games. Video games, whatever. It's all going to rot your brain. Every, every generation has a, has a brain-rotting uh, emergency, and, and every generation seems to uh, graduate beyond it just... Uh, long enough to start wagging their fingers at the next one and saying, this is why you guys are we so lazy. We used to buy drugs on the street, not the internet. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> so what? Do, so I'm going to take it down uh, intellectually a notch, and uh, as I want to do, and say that my two uh, that I've... I've uh, I think I may have plugged this a while ago, but I don't think it um, maybe resonated. But American Vandal Season 2 uh, is phenomenal. If you like poo, um, and if you think poo is funny, then... G.G. Allen uh, likes poo. He sure does. Um, no, I think American Vandal Season 2, well beyond the poo jokes, is uh, is a really funny, um, you know, sort of satire. <laughs> beyond um, the poo jokes? Yeah, beyond the poo. I mean, yeah, you, you cut through the poo jokes. And, but it is, <laughs> is that it's the a, tagline? It's a very funny um, uh, send-up of, of uh, you know, sort of 48 hours... Uh, um, Dateline, um, you know, documentary, in, you know, investigative documentary, which is, it, it's very funny in this case. It's um, the first season of American Vandal, which I, I thought was hit and miss and kind of funny. Great times, idea. Was, you know, about a guy drawing dick, uh, spray painting dicks on uh, teachers' cars. <laughs> uh, the second... Made me laugh. Uh, <laughs> several uh, poo-related incidents at another high school. And um, I, whatever, the casting, everything... Is, is brilliant. It's such a good show. And, the wiping um, of the American mind. Yes. Um, and I, I just can't, I can't recommend it enough. And, uh, you know, I also watch the Ted Bundy tapes. I want to watch that. I've it's, heard good um, things. It's pretty good. It's Joe Berlinger, um, Massachusetts native Joe Berlinger. <laughs> and, um, uh, it's. It, I think they did well with what they could. I, you know, the more I learn about this kind of uh, programming, where you know you sort of in advance sell a certain number of episodes, I think the Ted Bundy tapes could have been half as long right. and just as good. Um, you don't really, you know, because Ted Bundy was such a sociopath and, and lied all the time. You don't. I don't feel like hearing his voice. I'm. I'm getting any sort of true. You know. Uh, entree into his way of thinking or soul uh, just because he, you know, was such a messed up guy. Um, it is creepy to hear him talk about things, but he's, you know, he doesn't, you know, I don't feel like I'm getting a ton of insight. Um, and But I still enjoyed it thoroughly, and I, you know, I remember the case, and I remember 
friends from Florida like re- rejoicing when he was sentenced to death. It's uh, you know it's pretty disturbing. I heard a uh, listening to another podcast, Bill Simmons podcast this week, talking about watching that, and he had the great line of. Um, Ted Bundy who's always been you know noted for being so handsome he's like yeah he's like serial killer handsome <laughs> he's like it's like uh, when we say athletes are funny it's like yeah he's funny for an athlete <laughs> yeah, that's sort of like uh, Capitol Hill hot yeah um, <laughs> anyway uh, you want to put a song on the uh, 46 million 10 best songs of all time let's do it Christian now Wyndham are we going to uh, make up for last time uh, I think we are. I think uh, uh, that's right. We decided forget, or not, uh, in your absence that we get two this time. Oh, really? Because we forgot to put one on last time. So, mm. so because of our mistake, uh, we're going to make you wait longer, Jerry. <laughs> yeah. So go uh, ahead. Well, why don't you kick it off on them? Um, I am going to go with uh, Push a T. When you know, you know. Uh, we it was our top rated album of last year, and we didn't haven't yet put a song from it on the uh, on the mix and I'm perfectly happy to uh, yeah, throw that song out because every time it comes on it, it just elevates you it's a great I mean what a great track it's insane let's hope the Patriots listen to that before they run out and then I also watched uh, there's a I, when I'm bored I'll watch a, a series a bunch of different series that are basically made in England one's called Rock Legends one's called Classic Albums and I watched the Classic Albums on Never Mind the Bullocks and uh Pretty interesting stuff, but I'm going to throw uh, Holidays in the Sun on there. Nice. Nice. I like those choices. Um, all right, so I will go with uh, first Genius of Love by Tom Tom Club. Great um, song. We, uh, yeah, we, we heard that down in, in Charlottesville uh, over, the, over the holidays, and it, it just made a bunch of playlists since. Um, and uh, DVP by Pup. Um, which is uh, a, an awesome, um, like, uh, good, rollicking, fun punk tune. So, awesome. All right. Well, I'll put on my one song. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, that I was, sucks, I, Jeremy. You only get <laughs> one song. <laughs> it's all right. I have the Super Bowl this weekend to look forward to. Um, I was gonna do one, but I, I, after talking about Boston and LA, I'm gonna switch gears. And one band we didn't mention from Boston, one of my my favorite bands from the, the that late '80s era, is Galaxy 500. And I'm gonna put Tugboat Captain on nice. Galaxy 500. Nice, great song. Cool, excellent. Right. Well, this was fun. Um, good luck in the Super Bowl. Uh, I you hope don't mean you... that. Yeah. No, no. I hope uh, somebody gets in a terrible accident before the game. Um, but um, but but neither of you. Uh, so I look forward to seeing you two next week and um, getting ahead with another episode. Enjoy. Uh, enjoy good. the Super Bowl. Talk to you later. Enjoy the Moonroom Five uh, performance. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother 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 podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.